step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Thank you for tuning in, and welcome to another epic edition of The Jerry Jones Show, hosted by Jerry Jones, along with his sidekick, Kevin Anderson. Each and every episode is guaranteed to increase your profits and decrease your stress in dentistry. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Jones with Dentistry Confidential and Jerry Jones Direct. And uh, today I have uh, Dr. Lauren Levine, the digital dentist, as my special guest. And um, I've been looking forward to uh, this interview for a couple weeks now, ever since we got it scheduled. And um, this is going to be a really cool call. We're going to cover some topics today that I think probably are, frankly, overly ignored in dentistry. Um, and one in particular, especially since it literally can sink your boat that you've worked so hard to. Uh, to build and float, and um, so we're going to get into a little bit of that and uh, talk about some technology, cloud versus server-based software, and we're just going to hit a bunch of different topics and and cover a wide variety of uh, of information on on today's uh, seminar. So, Dr. Levine, you can hear me okay? I can, and thank you for inviting me to the webinar. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm glad you could make it, and and thank you for uh, thank you for making time in your busy schedule. I know you just uh, got back from uh, from one of the big dental meetings and. Um, it sounded like that was a, a great success, and one of the one of the big topics there it sounded like that really had folks on edge maybe would be the right terminology is HIPAA. Um, why don't we just start off there and kind of dive into this HIPAA thing because I've got some questions I get asked constantly about HIPAA, um, and my response is usually you know talk to your attorney because I don't want to give you any advice. Um, yeah. you know, that might be contrary to what, you know, is in your best interest because I don't know, I'm not an attorney and I, I haven't studied HIPAA, but I know it's a big factor for a lot of folks and some are a little nervous about it. So why don't we dive in there? Tell us, tell us the, um, you know, tell us your take on HIPAA, where, why this is such an important, um, topic that dentists need to be paying attention to very carefully and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I think a lot of our clients would say that HIPAA may be the, the, the worst five-letter word in dentistry, maybe next to audit. Um, you can always combine those two together to get HIPAA audit, and that's really bad. Um, we've unfortunately had a few clients that have gone through that as well. But, you know, what's happening? HIPAA been around a long time. A lot of people don't realize that the initial HIPAA rules and regulations started in 1996. Um, back then, it was more just the privacy rules. But what has happened is that of course, as you know, most dentists are moving towards a chartless or paperless environment. Everything's going digital. Everyone's using practice management software and digital x-rays. And the government and all their wisdom said, you know, if all this information is now electronic, it's really going to be at risk. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that people can lose that data, get it hacked, uh, get it stolen. And there really should be something in place to protect patients. And, you know, in my uh, – and I agree with this, and in my opinion – Patients have a reasonable expectation that dentists are going to do everything in their power 
to keep that private information secure and confidential. And I, I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. Um, part of the challenge with HIPAA, unfortunately, is that a good 50% of all the rules and regulations are administrative. It's all the policies and procedure manuals and documentation, and that's what tends to sink more offices than, than other things. So um, it's out there. You know, I think when people first started hearing about HIPAA, they thought of it the way they thought of OSHA years ago, where maybe you get a little bit of a slap on the wrist. When HIPAA um, did their quote-unquote final rule, which was 2013, it was called the Omnibus Rule, they clarified the, the levels of, of fines and penalties and, you know, for what they consider to be willful neglect, which basically means you knew about this problem, you didn't do anything about it, now we're going to make sure you never forget us. Those fines can go as high as a million and a half dollars per type of incident. So oh, it's got some real teeth, and it's, uh, it's not something people want to ignore. I kind of agree with you that, you know, <clears throat> at least from the standpoint of the ADA, I think organizational dentistry really has not done the best possible job of educating dentists on HIPAA rules and regulations and what's going to be happening. You know, the, the, the organization that runs HIPAA, the Office of Civil Rights, just now announced a few weeks ago that they are uh, restarting their random audit program. They did about 150 random audits in 2012. It's going to be 1,500 or so this year. So, yeah, your odds are certainly still not high that you're going to get audited. You think of all the physicians and, and dentists out there, but they're higher than they were. Um, we've had offices that have gone through that process. Even for first-time offenders, they're looking at somewhere between twenty-five and $50,000 in fines and penalties, and those are for the ones that are prepared. Um, if you get a letter that you're being audited, you're going to have somewhere around 10 days to uh, prepare, which is nowhere near enough if, if you haven't already done a lot to get yourself compliant. Wow, so we're talking big money. This isn't something where the board says, hey, uh, you pulled the wrong tooth, we're going to slap you with a $10,000 fine and restitution to the patient or whatever the case might be. This is a serious, serious deal. I mean, twenty-five to fifty grand plus up to a million per incident. I mean, that's for willful neglect, which means you just ignored the law. Uh, it was there, and you just ignored it. I mean, they, they punish you still. Yeah, the, the most... Uh, well-known case, it was there's a dentist here in California about two years ago who had his server stolen, and the server was not encrypted. He was running a practice management software he thought was encrypted. It wasn't. But most offices have far more data on their server than just the practice management data. You've got images or Invisalign or spreadsheets, Word files, whatever. Last I heard, he was looking at somewhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars in fines. So. Um, <clears throat> probably the, the worst part, though, of all of that, even worse than the fines and penalties, if you can imagine such a thing exists, is that if you have suffered a breach, uh, that's another thing that was clarified with the omnibus rules, was the breach notification rule. Not only do you have to notify the local media as well as be list, listed on the Health and Human Services website, you have to send a letter out to every one of your patients of record notifying them of the breach and what information may have been compromised. And usually you're talking about social security numbers and credit card information. We have worked with offices that have gone through that process. They have lost on average between 25 and 35% of their patients literally overnight. So forget the fines and penalties. Losing a third of your practice, I think, would, would sink pretty much all of us. So um, well, that's, it's not that's something you want to mess around with. You just literally just moved to a new state. I mean, you're you're that damaged. I mean, that's really a 
That is brutal. <clears throat> um, so, so I mean, taking what what the end results are, if you don't do, um, let's reverse engineer this and avoid uh, the problems on the HIPAA side. So, uh, let's say a dentist is. I mean, I'll, I'll use my office as an example. So, in my office, we're running uh, Dentrix G4 or G5. I don't know which one. I know we have a server in the office. <clears throat> I know it's in my um, uh, my COO's uh, unlocked office. Um, and, you know, any dental staff member can access that server. Um, I don't know if we have uh, a policies and procedures manual in place. Um, I, I know what's going to happen after I'm done with this call with you. Because, <laughs> yeah. I, <clears throat> I mean, this is, this is all new and interesting and different to me. I had uh, no clue. So how do we reverse engineer to avoid these problems? And, and so that if we are one of the unfortunate few that get this audit letter, <clears throat> or worse, are accused of a HIPAA violation by a patient, um, what do we do to protect ourselves? How, how, what's step one? And then take us through like what we should really do. If you were in practice today, Lauren, what would you do? Okay, so it's not that bad, fortunately. So the way that we tend to approach it, and, and the HIPAA rules have privacy rules, security rules, administrative rules. We tend to focus more on the security and administrative. The privacy rules... They're out there. They're more designed towards common sense things, things like not discussing a patient in front of another patient and um, not having overt stickers on charts, for example, that would show high-risk patients or, um, you know, leaving voice messages. Uh, hey, you know, Mrs. Jones, want to remind you to take your pre-medication for your heart murmur because you're getting that implant next week. That's not the type of mess you would want to leave on, on someone's answering machine. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's the common sense stuff. But if, if someone came to me, as, as a lot of people do, and say, where should I get started? In talking with the HIPAA auditors and the office that have gone through it, it's important to understand that no office can get 100% HIPAA compliant. There are somewhere around 580 pages of HIPAA rules and regulations. It, you can read them. They're online. If you, if you have Insomnia, it's a great way to, to fall asleep, but, you know, I've had to read it and stay awake, and it, it's very comprehensive. And you look at some of the major fines and penalties that have occurred. It hasn't really happened to dentists and physicians. It's happened to larger health organizations, Anthem and Mass General. And you think about it, they've got full-time, you know, salaried HIPAA compliance officers on the payroll. And if they can't get them compliant, you know, what, did, what chance do dentists have? But in speaking with the auditors, they're looking for what's called VDE, visibly demonstrable evidence. Have you made a good faith effort to try to get compliance? So the first thing they're going to do if they show up at your office is show us a copy of your most recent risk assessment. Now, <clears throat> in all their wisdom, the HIPAA police haven't actually specified how do you do risk assessment. There are as many risk assessments out there as there are practitioners. So um, the one that we offer for our clients, we don't charge for it. It would produce about a 22-page document that would uh, demonstrate that the risk assessment was done and, and what was found. Um, certainly, you know, I've never heard of any of our clients saying that it, it wasn't adequate, that, you know, the ones that were audited. So, um, but some type of formal risk assessment that you document needs to be done. One of the things that that risk assessment will most likely bring up, if you don't already have it, is the fact that you need a policies and procedure manual. 
Now, there are standardized manuals out there like the ones you get from the ADA. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that that thing is mostly a lot of blank lines. People don't realize that there's a lot of stuff you actually have to fill out. There's a lot of questions in there. Um, unfortunately, some people just buy it and put it on the shelf and think they're done with it, and that's that's not the case. So those are the first two things I would start with is do the risk assessment, um, make sure you have a policies and procedure manual. We provide manuals for our clients. We customize it for every office based on that risk assessment. Um, it's an online and printed so that people can update it throughout the year if they want. They can print it out as much as they want. The rest of the okay. stuff then mm. starts to <clears throat> come more into the IT realm. And I would say, you know, one of two things, either talk with your IT company to see what they are doing, uh, if they've got these things in place. Um, if they are not comfortable with it, if you don't get the, the feeling that they are up on all the HIPAA rules and regulations, then um, the next thing to do would be to look for another IT company. I mean, I, I don't know any other nice way to say that, but you really want to work with someone that understands some of this. For example, a lot of IT companies don't know that they are considered business associates of the dental offices, that by law there has to be a signed business associate agreement between two of you, and they are just as liable as you are for any breaches of the data. So obviously you want to make sure that they're up on all that stuff. And we can get into all the specifics, but the things that we normally would provide for our clients and we recommend that if they're not working with us that they go to their IT company would be things like making sure you're encrypting all the devices, that you've got um, some type of encrypted email system in place, that you've got a good backup and disaster recovery that you test and verify on a regular basis. Um, HIPAA says you're supposed to do something called patch management, that the programs that you run, Windows and Office and Adobe, things like that, are usually full of all kinds of security holes, and those companies release patches to them on a regular basis that if you're not automatically applying those patches, you don't even know that they exist, so you should have something like that in place. You obviously need to have firewalls and antivirus software. <clears throat> There's a new class of viruses called ransomware, where the virus locks your files and you have to pay a ransom to get it out, so you should have some type of protection like that as well. But you know, those are the, the key things. You know, as I said, we, we can spend hours on this and go through it one by one, but um, for offices that have a manual in place, have done their risk assessment, have protected everything by either through firewalls and software and backup and encryption and all that stuff, that's going to go a long way towards mitigating any fines or penalties that, that you'll get. I mean, if an auditor com comes in and they're determined to nail you, they're going to nail you. But as I said, if you've got that stuff in place, it's really going to show that you have made that good faith effort, and it certainly will go a long way to p potentially towards eliminating any fines or penalties. Um, you mentioned a couple of things, and, and um, I went on your website, and I saw this really awesome uh, piece of backup machinery. It was like a 4 million terabyte backup gizmo. Um, it's impermeable to water, uh, whatever, heat, fire. Um, and is that the sort of backup thing that you're that you're talking about that folks should have? So if I've got my server, um, I should also have uh, something on site that that backs up my data regularly. That's that's you know immune to a fire or to flooding. Yeah, we we've, we've tried actually a few different types of local devices. I'm not even sure if we're still using that one. We have multiple options that we offer to our clients. One of the things that HIPAA says 
and we think this is obviously common sense, is that your backup has to be quote-unquote retrievable. And by all definitions, that means that it's off-site. We've had some people that will put it onto an external hard drive and put it in a quote-unquote fireproof safe. Um, fireproof does not equal melt-proof, as some of our clients have unfortunately found out the hard <laughs> way. So it's, it's not enough to just keep it in the office. You want to get it out of the office. Now, if you're going to use an external hard drive, which we don't really recommend, but it, it's, we certainly have a number of, of offices that do that, you absolutely need to encrypt that. The number one breach of all the breaches that are out there is a lost or stolen external hard drive. So if you're going to do it, make sure you encrypt the drive. But in my experience, anything that involves human interaction, we try to eliminate that with the backup. Because, of course, if you have a staff member doing it and they're out sick for a week or you forget the drive in the office, that's the day that the office burns down. And so um, you want to have it off-site. And we are certainly huge fans of online backup. The problem with an online-only solution is that a lot of offices have dozens, if not hundreds, of gigabytes of data. And depending on your Internet speed, if you've got to download all that data, that could take days, weeks. It's a long time. So we've always advocated some type of local device. And what we do and what we recommend for our clients is basically what's called an image of the server. You take a snapshot of the entire server, put it onto some type of secure device, that image can be updated as much as you want. We have offices that do it once a day, every hour. We have some that do it every 15 minutes. If the office were <clears throat> to suffer some type of server outage, uh, something, you know, the server goes down, something happens that you can no longer use that server, what you would do or we would do is we create a virtual environment. We, we point it to that copy of the server. You're back, back up and running on average 30 to 40 minutes versus the days of downtime that you're going to have. So we actually recommend a two-pronged approach, you know, a local backup, which is really going to be the one we restore from 99% of the time, but also something in the cloud. Uh, we had a number of clients, for example, uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit on the East Coast a couple of years ago, that we ended up restoring backups from that online component because what they had in their office was gone. Uh, we had sure. a few offices in Joplin uh, that was hit with a uh, Joplin, Missouri, that was hit with a hurricane. Uh, was it a hurricane or a tornado, tornado um, yep. years ago? And same thing. We we had to restore from from the cloud because whatever they had locally was gone. But your local backup is normally your first line of defense. It's the fastest. It's the most secure. But we want to have something offsite as well for the times that you have that true emergency, a fire, flood, theft, or something along those lines. Well, you know, and with computers, I'm a huge fan of redundancy. I mean, you 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 know, even if you are backing up offline or, or online, rather, you know, doing something to the cloud, it, it never hurts to have that hard backup, at you know, somewhere else. Um, and I think that's a brilliant strategy. Um, you mentioned encrypted <clears throat> email. Um, now, this is an area I know it's been. There's a lot of confusion about it. Um, there are a ton of offices uh, that send uh, patient x-rays by regular email. They'll use their Gmail account or they'll use their office email that's maybe through GoDaddy or, or Bluehost or some company like that or Rackspace. Um, is that legal? I mean, can they be sent, can a dentist or a dentist staff member send a patient's x-ray through a non-encrypted email? So, yeah, there's a lot of confusion about this and there's a lot of components to it. And I think before we talk about that, we have to back up a second and talk about one of the things that HIPAA uh, defines is that there's two types of HIPAA rules. There are what's called required rules and what's called addressable rules. 
Okay. Required means you've got to do it, no ifs, ands, or buts. Addressable means uh, that you must do it if it's reasonable and appropriate. If it is not reasonable and appropriate, come up with an alternative, and if an alternative exists, no alternative exists, then document it. And there are some people out there, people that I respect, but that I don't agree with that are preaching that this is basically your get-out-of-jail-free card. As long as you document that you don't think it's reasonable and appropriate and there's no alternative, you're off the hook. The problem is that when you're talking about reasonable and appropriate, yes, you get to make that decision until the day the HIPAA auditor shows up. (laughs) And something like encryption, uh, when, when we're talking about data at rest, which is on your server, that is an addressable concern. But as I was saying, I mean, we talked about that case where the, uh, the dentist is server stolen. Who cares about the fines and penalties? You still have a breach if it's not encrypted. You know, encryption is your get-out-of-jail-free card. If you can show that in document that you've done that, you would not have to notify the patients or the local media if it had been encrypted. So mm-hmm. that's for data at rest. Data in motion, which is uh, email, would be a perfect example of that. There's no ambiguity about that. You, you have to encrypt that. Your one exception to that is what's called the safe harbor rule, which basically means that you're going to send, let's say, a digital x-ray image to another office where there is literally no identifying information. HIPAA has identified 18 identifiers. You can just Google this, Google HIPAA, 18 identifiers. Things like patient name and initials and chart ID and address and social security, obviously. None of that can be in the email. It would literally be an x-ray image, and that's it. Now, as a person sending it, that may seem easy to you. Hey, we're just going to send this email. We're done with it. But you've got to think about it from the office's standpoint that's receiving it. You know, what if they get emails all day long that they don't know who it's for? I mean, they've got to call you up and say, hey, just got your email. Who is this for? And what if they've got 10 emails in their inbox? How are they supposed to keep track of it? I I don't think it's really practical. So, um, yes, HIPAA says that you must uh, encrypt uh, emails, that, you know, data in transit. Where there's also um, some confusion is that if you are sending emails to a patient, a, pa- <coughs> excuse me, a patient has the ability to opt out of the encryption requirement. A patient can sign something in your office that says, hey, I'm okay if you want to send me uh, my information through email and have it sent in a non-encrypted fashion. What they do not have the legal right to do is to say, oh, and by the way, if you're going to be sending my, my information to Dr. Jones, I'm okay if you don't encrypt that. They, don't, they can't say that. That's not within their legal rights to uh, remove that requirement for you. The good news when it comes to encrypted email systems is that of all the services that we recommend for our clients, it's the least expensive. Most of them are between 30 and 50 bucks a month for up to five email accounts. The ones that we recommend for our clients, the beauty of those systems is that one thing that's important to understand is that once electronic protected health information is in your control, it doesn't make a difference how it got there. So let's say you send an unencrypted email to a colleague they get the email, their laptop that they looked it on gets stolen. They're ultimately responsible for that. Now, they can come back to you and, and you know, make sure that you get penalized as well. But you know, they owned it. it. It was on their computer. It doesn't make a difference that you sent it to them. It, it's that. So most of the better encrypted email systems, what they do 
is they would get an email, and it would say, Dr. Jones has sent you an encrypted email, click here. Right. No patient information there, nothing. Now, if it's the first time they've received something from you, it's going to say, hey, we don't have you in our you know, file here. Please create your own username and a password, and they do that, and then they're, they're in. The next time they get it, they would just say, please re-enter your username and password. Once they've done that, they can now view the email. They can print out the attachments. They can respond. They can forward it whatever you want. It it's, protects them as well as you because there's never anything in their inbox. The, the beauty of most of the better uh, encrypted email systems out there is that the recipient does not have to pay a fee in order to be able to receive those emails. You, know, you as the sender would have some type of encrypted email system, but if the person that, that wants to get it, uh, wants to open it, they don't, they don't have to pay a, you know, any type of fee. They don't have to have special software to open it or any of the traditional things in the past that were kind of a barrier for entry for, for a lot of offices. Sure. <clears throat> so that, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. So, um, I mean, realistically, of all of the expenses a, a dental practice has uh, throughout the month, I mean, to me, this just this is like you know less than the uh, bottled water bill. I mean, that's ridiculous that somebody wouldn't. Yeah, take compared to a fifty thousand dollar fine, know. I mean, you're going to pay fifty bucks a month. It's going to take a lot of months of paying wow. that to make up what you know what, yeah. what one little fine is going to is going to run. Right. Well, and, and that just opens the door. I mean, unfortunately, when you know when the bureaucrat smells one fine, uh, you know he smells many, and um, or she, and they will they will pursue uh, aggressively. So, um, okay. So, uh, what I would love to have though, uh, we've talked about encryption a lot. What is the definition of encryption? Can you give us? Because and I don't want to go. You know, it's not that. I mean, I, I understand it a little bit, but what is it exactly? I mean, we know that encryption means I can't see it, but what does it mean from the standpoint of an email being encrypted and and data being encrypted? And, and you talk, for example, um, about you know having your 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 server encrypted and how important that is. What does that mean? So, so the couple of issues here. So, if you actually read through the HIPAA rules and regulations, they don't use the word encryption very often, if if at all. They use the terms indecipherable, unreadable. Um, I can't remember what the third one is, but it, it's, it basically adds up to encryption. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about data at rest on the server, for example. Basically what it does is it scrambles it. It means if someone were to try to access that data that did not have the decryption key, um, they would, it would just look like gibberish to them, okay. uh, which obviously protects th- that information that's on there. With a server, the good news for most people is that there is software built into the operating system that can do the encryption for you. It's free. It's called BitLocker. If you're running server 2008 or 2012, um, it's built into it. Even some of the the modern operating systems, uh, Windows 7 Ultimate, uh, Windows 8 Professional, Windows 10 Professional, have BitLocker built into it. So you can get, you know, free programs out there. There's one called TrueCrypt or VeraCrypt, um, which basically all you do is you create an encrypted folder and you put the data into that folder and then at that point it's encrypted. So that's a relatively easy process. With email, it's a little more complicated and you know it, it's a little technical to go through exactly what happens. The real issue with an encrypted email system is that normally when you send an email, if you're using your regular Gmail account or Yahoo, whatever, you send an email to the guy down the street, 
is not going directly from your computer to another computer. It's going through a series of servers that move it along in, in that path. We call those hops. And there can be anywhere, depending on where they're located, anywhere from about 4 to 15 hops along the way. And where HIPAA got involved with all this is that when you send an unencrypted email, it's hopping along to those different servers, but you've really got no control over where those servers are and what type of encryption or protection on those servers. An encrypted email system eliminates all that. It basically is going to go from your computer to whichever company is hosting that encrypted email service, all of it encrypted, obviously, and then moved on to the recipient. There, there are no insecure hops along the way. Um, <clears throat> depending on the type of encrypted email system you do, there's usually one of two ways you can do it. Uh, what a lot of our clients like to do, they, they're already using Outlook. So the encrypted system adds another icon, like another uh, button to their Outlook where normally it would say send. There would be another button that says send secure, uh, which is really easy to use. If an office doesn't use Outlook, then most of the other ones, it's like a desktop applet that you would open it up just like you would a Gmail or Yahoo, one of those, and just type in who it's going to, and you hit the send, and, and off it goes. But it, it's basically a, a self-contained system um, versus using Gmail. The other thing that's important, which is critical, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, is that anyone that has potential access to your data you must have a signed business associates agreement with them. Now, that would certainly include your IT company, uh, your practice management consultant, uh, your accountant, the practice management software vendor if they're logging in to do troubleshooting, um, and certainly the email provider as well. If you're sending patient information, you must have that signed business associates agreement. You will not get that with regular Yahoo, uh, Gmail, you can't do it with the free version. There's actually a paid version of Gmail called Google Apps for Work that will do it, but then, of course, it's about 5 10 bucks a month for, for that one. So um, there are ways around it with Gmail, but we still certainly recommend uh, you know, ones that are more designed for, for the healthcare industry. Sure. Well, that, I mean, that, that also makes sense. Um, uh, let's talk about one of my favorite applications, and I and I know one of these days somebody's going to bust into it and the whole country's going to scream, but I absolutely love Dropbox. Um, I've got a remote organization. Um, you know, I mean, I don't have an office any longer. I have a dental office, but that's separate. But I, I no longer have an office with people in it. They're all scattered all over the United States and now one in Australia. So we use Dropbox a lot. Um, the nice thing about Dropbox is, you know, as you know, you can sync files and you can share files and you can give people permission to, you know, view folders and I mean, you can share giant files and it's just really made life easy on, on you know, to be able to to collaborate with folks. Um, I would imagine there are folks that have their QuickBooks data in Dropbox. I would imagine there's some that even, maybe even have patient data that they've stored in Dropbox. What are some of the hazards there? Um, and should we, you know, is that something that we maybe should reconsider using? Um, yeah, it's not the compliance. So, <laughs> um, well, that that's the bad news. There's actually a good news side to this. So, <laughs> Dropbox, in it in and of itself, native Dropbox is not HIPAA compliant. Um, it's not encrypted. Um, as you know, when you have Dropbox on your system, you can just double click on the icon and boom, it opens up. 
And one of the things that HIPAA says is that you have to have what's called access controls and accountability. And what that basically means is that if the, anyone ever has access to your patient information, you need to know who accessed it, when they accessed it, what did they do with it. You have to have some type of automatic log-off procedure in place so that you know if you leave it unattended for a while, it's going to log you out. Uh, and Dropbox obviously has none of those. There is an add-on for Dropbox called Sucasa. It's S-O-O-K-A-S-A. Um, and everything that I've seen from it does uh, allow it to be uh, HIPAA compliant. It's, you, know, you can download it and play with it for about a month or so, I think, for free. You've you got to pay for it after a while, so it's not free um, the way that a lot of people's Dropbox accounts. And it works not with just with Dropbox, but Google Drive and OneDrive and Box.net and you know, all the other ones that are out there. <clears throat> but you would certainly need some type of add-on to Dropbox if you are putting – uh, protected health information in there. Okay, good. Um, and it's and not expensive. It's like I think it's like ten bucks per month per you know per use. Most offices would just be the business that would be using it, so it's not not horrible. Right. Okay. Um, all right. Let's let's shift gears from HIPAA because um, I'm sufficiently uh, gladly sorry about that. I know no, some people no, no, are probably getting okay. sick to their it, stomach it, with it, but. It's one of those things we got to talk about it. I mean, there, you've you've exposed things I had no idea about. I've got an interesting conversation that I'll be having with our COO about you know some of the things that we need to look into and change, um, or you know unless unless they're way ahead of the game, which uh, they have been on a lot, on a number of things I've talked to them about after the fact. But um, anyway, so let's let's shift gears to uh, let's go to the uh, technology side. Um, you and I had uh, not too long ago a conversation uh, through email about. Um, uh, you know, a, a server-based organization versus a cloud-based uh, practice. Uh, let me let me back up. Server-based practice management software for multi-location offices versus cloud-based software for multi-location offices. Um, I, I mean, I get it. I see it. You know, a lot of apps are going to the cloud. I mean, you've got uh, software as a service, the SaaS um, mm -hmm. uh, programs out there, and I mean, there's there appear to be some really great. Um, practice management companies that are, you know, that are that have made that move or started in the cloud, um, and then of course there's traditionalists that uh, still have servers, and you know you've got client client servers in your office, and you know you're you're not using the cloud necessarily. Um, take us through some of the the challenges that you see still today with cloud-based practice management software, and um, you know if you're if you're so inclined, even uh, I don't mind if you mention those that you think are, you know, doing a great job or on the cutting edge, um, you know, and, and because we got, we get, I get questions about that. You know, are you guys using a cloud-based? Are you still server? Um, I mean, in my own office, we're still server. Uh, I don't see that changing anytime, you know, in the next couple of years, but who knows? Stranger things have happened. So what, what's your take on, on that, on that, uh, yeah, so on those th questions? That's where we're headed. I mean, there's no doubt that, and that we're not talking just dental practice management software, but all software is headed towards a cloud-based platform. And, you know, we use the terms web-based, clouded. It basically means the same thing, where the data is stored on somebody else's servers. Um, Microsoft is really pushing their Office 365. I think, realistically, within the next decade or so, there will no longer be a downloadable version of, of Office. Everything will be cloud-based. And people use the cloud every day, whether it's on Amazon or you know, throughout their lives, banking, everything, everything's online now. So we're headed there. 
are we going to get to a point where, you know, all dental software is cloud-based? Who knows? I mean, it could be five years. It could be 55 years. Uh, no one knows what's going to be happening. <laughs> cloud-based, I mean, it was first, the first versions of, of this came out in the, the mid-'90s. There was one called Dental Pack Online, and there was Ciridan and Dentasoft Online, and, you know, most of them have gone by the, the wayside. So there are definitely advantages to cloud-based. And certainly, you know, from a HIPAA standpoint, which we were talking about for most of the last half hour, um, much easier to be HIPAA compliant when you don't have any data in your office. You don't have to worry about encryption. You don't have to worry about your backup, um, <clears throat> about patching software, uh, you know, email encryption, all that type of stuff when the data is residing on someone else's servers. And the companies that I'm familiar with, the ones that are, are doing the worst job for HIPAA compliance are still light years ahead of the best office that we've ever worked with for HIPAA compliance. I mean, they, they have to. It's much more serious for a cloud vendor from, for a, from a HIPAA standpoint than <clears throat> what most offices are doing. So they are safe and secure. The two downsides that we've seen, number one, not, not as much for urban environments but more for rural practices, is bandwidth. You've got to have a fairly decent Internet speed, and it's got to be up all the time. When your Internet's down, you're down. And it's not, you know, you have, there's no way around it. If you can't get your data, you can't pull up your images, you can't schedule, you, you can't do anything. You're literally dead in the water. Mm -hmm. um, most of our clients who are using web-based, uh, it's just not an issue. And typically what we'd recommend, let's say you're using cable Internet, well, then get a second, uh, maybe get a DSL as a, as a second account, or a lot of offices already have some type of, data plan on their smartphone and in a pinch you could tether your smartphone to your network and, and run off of that for an hour or two if, if you had to. Mm -hmm. um, the other issue tends to be one of cost that you know by the time you add up all the features that you typically need most people need more than just the base software they're going to want to be able to send out reminders and they're going to want to have some type of special reporting features and uh, imaging modules things like that. It's not unusual for a cloud-based client to be spending five, six hundred dollars a month versus the hundred dollars or so a month that you're going to pay with a, a client server type software for support. And that adds up over time. Now, the cloud vendors will tell you, hey, but you're not going to have to replace your hardware and you don't need as much uh, investment in the hardware. And that's true. But we're talking, you know, a thousand bucks a year versus six thousand dollars a year and five grand a year. That adds up. That there's no, you know, there's no way to change it that over time, when time usually means two or three years, you're going to spend more on a cloud-based software than you ever spent on client-server, and that's going to continue as long as you're a client of them. Um, as far as my favorites, I'm a huge fan of Curve. Uh, I think they've done the best job. They've been around the longest. Uh, I know the people in the company, and we've got multiple clients using their system. Um, another one is Denticon.com through Planet DDS. They've got a very solid system. There's some newer ones out there. There's Umbi and Tab32, and we've seen a few other ones coming down the pike. I don't know enough about them or have any clients using them to make any opinions one way or the other. But just the fact that we're seeing so many newcomers really has me encouraged that this is where the industry is headed. Um, but we've got a way to go. And, and honestly, I mean, when I'm working with an office, and you can look at the numbers and you can look at the HIPAA compliance issues and the backup and all that stuff, at the end of the day, the software still has to run your practice. And 
what I would recommend to somebody who's in the market for new practice management software is evaluate the web-based ones just like you evaluate any other program. Sit there with your staff and get a demo and see how intuitive it is, how it handles billing and scheduling and treatment planning and charting. And that's the stuff you use every day. You know, who cares if you're saving some money or if it's, you don't have to worry about backup if software is clunky and you're using it. What's the point? I mean, you, you just you have a solution that you're not happy with, and eventually you're going to want to change again. So, I don't, you know, I wouldn't look so much at the costs or, or the features as, as I would of how does it feel in you know in your hands, like like just like any other type of dental you know product that we use. Uh, you know, sure. how, how you yeah. handle it is is going to be the deciding factor. Yeah, I I think um, I mean I look at I, I've been un, unfortunately I've had to really immerse myself in the server versus cloud question um, for, you know, uh, a large organization, not just one office, um, with the franchise that we've kicked off, um, that that has brought to light a lot of issues that I didn't even know existed. Um, but I, I would agree with you, there there is a component where, you know, your docs have to be comfortable with, with the software. Um, and obviously going with the big, you know, one of the big two or three on the server-based side, you know, you, you really can't go wrong. Um, but the cloud is, you know, a little different. And I've had a couple people sit through demos with cloud-based software, and you know, there were there were definitely some surprises. Um, there were definitely some big questions that we're still working through to make that decision. But um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of the hesitation is the usual is the typical reasons why we're slow to adapt technology. It's a change. It's different, and it isn't the same old same old. So. So when we, you know, when we evaluate that, that's also a, a factor we have to really kind of think about. Um, when it comes to technology in the dental office, what are uh, what are some of the things that you feel? Um, I mean, you are practicing periodontists. What are some of the things that you feel that you are just must-haves for GP offices? I mean, you know, if you were a GP today, what would you not practice without? What would you absolutely have to have when it comes to technology? Well, I think you might be surprised by my answer. So, um, number one, and this is a, a classic mistake that a lot of offices make, make sure you've got your infrastructure in place first. We have so many offices that go to trade shows and they drop a ton of money on a cone beam system or a CAD cam or, you know, PANSAF or whatever, and they get back to the office and realize that they now they've got to replace all their computers and the server and the, the monitors. Need to, I mean, it's just... You need to make sure you've got the infrastructure in place first before you start adding the technology. Because a lot of times, that can really uh, that can be more expensive than what you're actually spending on on the high tech stuff. <laughs> yeah. So the yeah, one so technology that, which go ahead. So making that leap from from G3 or G4 Dentrix to, or I'm sorry, from whatever the previous version of Dentrix was. It wasn't G anything. It was what I don't remember. But you know, 11, making that leap, last we one literally the had to reconfigure our entire office. And it was twenty five grand or thirty grand in computers. So yeah, exactly. Uh, you got to yeah, have a strong infrastructure. That's a brilliant answer. Yeah, it's and it's you know and basically you know, the the basic rule of thumb is if your hardware is more than about four or five years old, you're probably going to need to replace it. Um, we usually when we sell computers to our clients, we tell them three to four years for their workstations, five to six years for the server. And it's not because the computers stop working or that they don't function. It's that as you keep Upgrading your software, it requires more and more horsepower, and you get to that point where the computers just can't keep up. So make right. sure that's in place. 
The number one technology that we recommend for GP offices, which has unfortunately fallen off the, the you know, the, the, the radar of so many offices, but I think it's fantastic, is an intraoral camera. You, I mean, we still, I'm still a big fan of, of the higher-end cameras because they're so diagnostic. And, you know, for a high-end camera, you're looking at somewhere around three to $4,000. Um, you can find on eBay some of these really cheap Asian cameras for 100 bucks, 150 bucks, and they're okay. Um, they're not... You know, they're not highly diagnostic. They're certainly more than adequate to show a patient, um, you know, gross pathology or something, something like that. But uh-huh. in my experience, the intraoral camera has the best, longest, quickest return on investment of any technology out there. And as I say, you know, the industry has focused so much lately on CAD CAM and digital impressions and cone beam, and I think they're all fantastic technologies. But you know, they're fifty, hundred thousand dollar technologies, and for a hundred bucks, you can get a camera that's going to sell dentistry that day and continue to sell dentistry forever. So, um, I would certainly recommend uh, you know people look at that. Um, almost all the other technologies out there, you know, the thing that I think offices have to do, and most of the practices I work with don't take the time to do this, because uh, as, as dentists, I think we all tend to be somewhat techno savvy and we're we're gadget geeks and we we like all the stuff that that's kind of cool um technology for technology's sake is really not a great long-term investment and you do have to think of these technologies as investments and in order for it to be a good investment there has to be the return on investment so what we would advocate is if you're thinking about cad cam or if you're thinking about a cone beam let's say for example office wants to get a cone beam because they're doing implants well, you've got to go back and say, okay, let's look at what's it going to cost me to buy this equipment. Look at the depreciation, or if you're financing, look at your monthly nut. Look at how many implant cases you're doing and being able to say, okay, we can justify this because we're doing enough cases. We've had offices that approach me and they'll say, hey, Lauren, what do you think about this cone beam system? I'm thinking about doing implants. And I'll say, well, it's a good system. You know, The price is $80,000, $90,000. I think that's fair for, for what you're getting. Oh, how many implants a month are you typically doing? Oh, we've been doing about two. And I'm like, <laughs> how how can you possibly justify the cost of, of this? Because you're only doing two implants. And they said, well, but now that we've got it, we're going to do more. And it's like, well, it doesn't really work like that. No, it so, does not. It's interesting so, you bring that I mean, up because that was, that was yeah. literally my next question is, how do you advise docs to evaluate technology and how are they affording this new tech? So you, you went right right down the road I was hoping you would go. But you're right. I get the same call and the same questions. Hey, you know, I want to get this brand new CAD CAM machine, E4D or CEREC, and I'm like, how many crowns are you doing? And you get 10 or you get 12 or whatever. Maybe it's 20. And I'm thinking, okay, how? the next question is what about your staff? Who's going to, who is going to be responsible for running this machine because it can't be you, which means, you know, you don't want to train the girl that's been with you or the gal that's been with you for six months or a year. You, you know, you want to have somebody that's going to be around for a while. So, yeah, all that stuff makes my stomach turn. But, uh, yeah, so I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it was kind of comical that you were going down the same path. At yeah, and, and you kind of brought up another point there, which is that a lot of people don't understand, this, especially with the higher technologies, the CAD CAM, the cone beams, um, there are certainly more costs than just the upfront cost. There are licensing costs, there are training costs, there are yearly support costs. 
you have to look at it from that standpoint of, well, how long, you know, what's the lifespan of this technology, and get a, a real feel for, you know, how long do you, you know, how much are you actually going to pay for this thing over the, over the lifespan of that equipment? Um, and for a lot of practices, they will find that there's not the positive return on investment. Now, the one area where we tend to not see a positive return on investment, but I still would recommend for most offices is digital x-rays. Um, I think patients are becoming very savvy. You know, more than half of offices that I work with are, are digital. I think most of the magazines would support that. You see they do surveys every year, and, and more than half of dentists are, are digital. I think mm-hmm. patients are coming to expect it. Um, you know, when it comes to sharing information with insurance companies, you know, people always worried years ago about the government mandate about going paperless, and that really never came out. Uh, I think the more likely scenario are that insurance companies at some point are going to say, listen, we're not taking paper claim anymore. We're not taking film. You've got to be digital. And when you look at the cost of the sensors and the need to upgrade the computers and the software support fees and the printing costs, if you're printing it out onto inkjet, I mean, over time, you're going to spend more than what you would have spent on film. There's no doubt about that. But um, I think you're going to lose patience if, if you're not digital. I think uh, you, know, you have to be perceived as being at least on the cutting edge. Of, you, know, you don't have to be on the bleeding edge, but... Uh, patients have an expectation just from a marketing standpoint. So that's the one technology that I still would recommend for every office, even though you may not be able to justify it from a pure ROI standpoint. But things like right. CAD CAM and digital impressions and cone beam, um, those you really have to look at it from the ROI standpoint. Yeah, I've, and I've, um, one of my good friends is a representative for a very expensive laser, uh, the Periolase. Um, and I say expensive because I don't have anything to compare it to. I just know it costs as much as a house in Oregon. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I say a lot of doctors buy these and they get the training and then it comes back and it makes a really nice coat hanger in their office. Um, and there's, you know, I know doctors that have steric machines that end up being coat hangers. What I what I always talk when I what I will talk to a doctor about is before they pull the trigger on something like this, I'll ask them, okay, what's your plan to market this piece of technology? Not not the piece of technology itself, but the benefits that it provides. What's your plan? Um, and you know, you see a GP go and buy a periolase, and if they don't have a plan in place, and they just expect that you know the SRP, uh, the the patients that are going through the practice now that need, that you know are are SRP candidates, uh, you know they they hope. I guess that they're just going to fold over and you know be happy to receive treatment from a periolase. Do you ever, um, when you go into a conversation like that to a doctor and you're and you ask them about their plan, you know what's how are you going to recoup your money? Are you even a good candidate for this? What what sort of other um, criteria do you ask them? What other evaluation criteria would you ask a dentist, or if you were considering one before you went and bought a periolase, um, what would you ask yourself? What kinds of things would you want to know? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of times when I'm talking with my clients, uh, I use that line from A Field of Dreams, you know, build it and they will come. Great movie line, horrible marketing strategy. Terrible. It just doesn't work. Absolutely you know? terrible. Um, and we, that's one of the things I do talk about with, with clients is to say, okay, and as I said, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's talking about not, hey, we got this great new technology. You're talking about the, the benefits of it. Um, so certainly that has to be part of it. Um, for some of the larger stuff like the CAD CAM and certainly for the cone beam, um, one of the issues that has to be decided is where are you going to put it? 
uh, yeah. it takes up a lot of space. So yeah. uh, we have practices that we work with that are in you know New York and you know cities where that have you know relatively small spaces that they literally just don't have the room for it. They, they don't realize that it, it takes up a lot of space. There's power needs for it, um, computing needs for it, um, and we also explore it like for a cone beam for example well now you've got huge amount of data cone beam images take up you know a typical cone beam series is somewhere between 750 megs and a gig of data and if wow. you're backing up online like we recommend most of the the better backup systems out there are going to charge you based on the amount of data that you have so now your backup fees are going to be significantly higher or you're going to have to reevaluate what you're doing for for backup and disaster recovery so it's just a matter of, of thinking though that the whole process of you know where am I going to put it and how am I going to market it and how am I going to increase my revenues with it and um, what other things are affected by having this thing in the office and it's just a process. I wish I could say here's the template and we use it for every single office, but there really mm -hmm. is no cookie cutter. It just depends so on the like technology and the practice. So the buying is the easiest part. <laughs> the rest of it's yeah. where the work comes into place. <laughs> The purchase is the easy side. Um, so I'm curious, do you have a favorite brand right now of uh, PCs? Uh, we use Dell, but primarily from the fact that 85 to 90 percent of my clients are out of state. You know, I've been writing articles and lecturing and been on Dentaltown for 15 plus years, and that's how people find me um, as much. As I move to Southern California, thinking I have a lot of clients out here. That the truth is, is that most of our clients are spread all over North America, U.S. and Canada. We've got clients in Australia and Scotland and England and all over the place. So part of the reason we like to use Dell is that if anyone ever had a hesitation about working with us, their only concern is, well, what happens if something happens to the hardware? I mean, I know you guys can log remotely and take care of things, and we start at 6 o'clock in the morning because we have so many clients on the East Coast that we need to be available for but the hardware is always the concern, Dell has local technicians. Now, we have a network of about 2,500 people around the country that we could still get someone out there within an hour or two if there was a true emergency. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the major vendors like, like HP and Dell, they have local techs. Um, you know, we have contracts with Dell, so they have to be there with a certain, within a certain time frame to replace it. And we just, we've had good luck with them. We've used to build our, our own systems ourselves. <clears throat> we wanted to fine-tune all the hardware that went in there, and it just got so expensive. And Dell builds a good box. They do it cheaply. Um, we can get the support that we need. So, um, yeah, we're, we're sort of getting to the point where computers are almost like a commodity that, you mm -hmm. know, they're a little more complicated than a toaster, but they're, they're not much more, uh, you know. You know, you've got to make sure you've got the proper video card and processor and memory and all that stuff. But beyond that, you know, once the computer is running and it's got specs that you need, you shouldn't have to really be worrying about that thing for another three or four years. And that's the way it's sure. supposed to work. I mean, there's yeah. obviously you get some lemons out there, but uh, we don't yeah. find that we spend a whole lot of time doing hardware. It's more software support and configurations and network issues. And <clears throat> I was actually just talking to our our text today about this, and what we found is kind of interesting that um, there seems to be a direct inverse proportional relationship between the price of something and the amount of support that it needs. Our <laughs> servers, we've had, you know, we can count on one hand the number of servers that we've had issues with in the last 15 years, but our days are filled with issues dealing with printers and print servers and routers and, you know, all these sub-$100 parts are the ones right. that we spend the most time on. 
and it's the high tech stuff that we plug it in and we don't have to think about it for another four or five years. So uh, yeah, that's, that's just the true. way it is. Yeah, that's very true. Well, I know we're getting close to our time together. We we had about 60 minutes planned, and we're getting pretty close. I have um, okay. essentially two more questions for you, um, and I think they're they're somewhat related in the type of question, but different, completely different topics. Um, <clears throat> so, if you were talking to a doctor and you had literally just a few minutes with the doctor, uh, in as few words as possible, what would you, how would you sum up technology with him? What what advice would you tell him? And just you know, if you had just a minute or two with him. Um, I would say, you know, one of the things I've always preached when I lecture on this topic is that for me, if an office is trying to go chartless or paperless, which we recommend, I mean, I think, I think that's where the industry's headed. For me, it's always been a six-step process. They've got to look at the practice management software, the image software, how they can design the operatory, the computer infrastructure, the high-tech things, and then protecting the data. Um, typically, if I only had a minute with a client, what I'd be saying to them is, listen, you, you know, IT is a lot like dentistry. You can't really treatment plan until you diagnose first. Same thing with IT. And this is something we've been doing for, for years for our clients, and we would recommend it, is whether it's us doing it or your IT company or someone local, you've got to diagnose first. You've got to have someone that can log in or be there and say, okay, here's where you're at. Let's figure out where you need to be. Let's figure out how we're going to sequence that. And here's the steps that you need to do. Here's your options. Here's what's going to cost. It's no different than a dental treatment plan. And where offices just tend to run into so many troubles, like I said, is they kind of start at that fifth step. They, they go out and buy the sensor or the CAD cam and the cone beam. They don't have the infrastructure in place. They don't have the software in place. Uh, they, they haven't thought it through well enough. And they make a forty, fifty thousand dollar mistake, and we we try to avoid those if, if at all possible. Okay, same question, uh, but just along the lines of HIPAA compliance. If you had that opportunity with a doc for a minute or two, what would you tell them about HIPAA compliance to you know just to really drive the point home that that you were making earlier? Well, one so uh, the administrative things are what's going to get you. And you had talked about this briefly before that, you know, if they see one thing, they're going to find other things as well. So normally what we would say is go ahead and do the, a risk assessment first. We have a free one on our website. So um, it's, it's basically a no-brainer. You know, you, it doesn't cost anything. It costs maybe t 10 minutes maybe because most people, when they fill out the risk assessment, the answer is no to everything. Do you have this? Do you have this policy? No, no, no. Fine. You, you've done it. Um, so do the risk assessment, and normally a risk assessment is going to show that you really should need a policies and procedure manual. If you are only going to do two things and not worry about all the other things we talked about, do those two because it's going to set a good tone if you ever get audited. Now, of course, I do think you need the encryption and the backup and the monitoring and antivirus and all that stuff, but um, I would say get the administrative stuff. Get, you, get your house in order first. Um, and then worry about the technical part of things uh, because when you do risk assessment, it's going to show you where you're deficient, and then you can start basically coming up with an action plan of how you're going to take care of it. Right. Um, that's the f a fantastic advice. Um, this has really been a, a, an awesome call. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, one of the things that uh, you do with clients before you really engage with them is you do um, – Similar to a marketing audit that we do for Jerry Jones Direct uh, members, you do a technical and administrative audit. Um, 
take take our listeners through how that works because I know a lot of folks are going to want to get in touch with you and talk to you about it. So, addition in addition to that, um, please please give us uh, information on how to reach out and, and contact you guys. Sure. Well, the risk assessment is the easiest because what they can do is on my website. It's uh, www.the like t h e digitaldentist.com. So the digitaldentist.com forward slash risk dash assessment. Um, that will take them to the, the risk assessment site. Uh, they will fill it out. We will get an email, and two things will happen at that point. Number one, uh, Jamie or Danielle, uh, who work with us, they will contact the office to go through the results of that administrative risk assessment process because uh, the risk assessment covers mostly administrative. At the same time, that email will then trigger my office manager, Candice, to call the office up and say, hey, we got your administrative risk assessment here. We'd love to schedule time to do the technical assessment. Um, you know, what works for you. You can watch what our techs are doing. If you're concerned about it, sign the business associate agreement, all the things that offices worry about. Um, and then the, the, that technical risk assessment doesn't normally take more than 20, 30 minutes. Once we have the results of the technical assessment, we have the results from the administrative assessment, then I would spend somewhere between 15 to 30 minutes with the dentist and say, okay, here's what we found. Here's the things that you you need to be aware of. Here's what I recommend doing. Here are your choices. Here's what it's going to cost. Um, We offer individual services for an office. A lot of our clients want to bundle it together to save money, and we, we can certainly do bundles with support, without support. Um, but we customize it. It really just depends on what the offices need are. We're not, uh, at least in my opinion, we're, we're not hard sell and you know high pressure. My goal here is to educate my colleagues on the fact that they, like almost every other office out there, are not HIPAA compliant. Um, there are things that you can do to get yourself more compliant. And then what it boils down to for most offices is money. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, what do you want to spend to allow yourself to sleep well at night? And for some offices, it's nothing, and some offices are happy to spend the money. So my goal is to let you know what can be done, what should be done, and if you want to work with us, great. If you want to take the information to your local IT company and see what they want to do, we oftentimes work with local IT companies who are providing support and basic services but may not be up on the HIPAA stuff, so we'll supplement what they do. We learned a long time ago how to play nicely with others, and, and we're happy to do that. So um, take the risk assessment, and that will get the ball rolling, and that's the best way uh, to, to you know, start the process. Okay, great. Um, I would encourage uh, all, of, all of our listeners to um, get the risk assessment and, and get started um, because, yeah, this is just one of those things you don't want interrupting your life. Um, you know, surviving an audit is uh, is always uh, something to be excited about, and just you know, if you can avoid the problems, why not avoid it? Um, but anyway, uh, Lauren, it's been a pleasure to have you as a guest uh, on Dentistry Confidential. I'm excited that uh, we were able to get on the phone together and, and uh, do this, and um, I'd encourage all of our subscribers to reach out to you at thedigitaldentist.com. And your website uh, where the risk assessment is is the digitaldentist.com forward slash risk dash assessment. Um, so go out and check it out. And, and Lauren, thanks again. And um, if there's anything we can do f- for you here, uh, give us a shout. Um, again, this is Jerry Jones with Jerry Jones Direct and, and uh, Dentistry Confidential. And have a great day. Thank you, everyone. And Jerry, thank you for having me on here. Hey, Jerry Jones here. Thank you for joining me on this edition of the Jerry Jones Radio Show. You've reached the end of this segment. You can always listen in to the next show by visiting jerryjonesdirect.com forward slash podcast. 
You can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or find the show at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Jerry Jones. For more information about Jerry Jones Direct, go to jerryjonesdirect.com or give us a call, 503-339-6000. Our member ambassadors are standing by to assist you. And once again, thank you for listening to The Jerry Jones Radio Show. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.